1868, there was a man named William, sorry, John Bode, John Bode, who wrote a hymn about following the Lord. O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. In verse 5, it says these words, wonderful words, O let me see thy footmarks, and in them plant mine own. My hope to follow duly is in thy strength alone. O guide me, call me, draw me, uphold me to the end, and then to rest receive me, my Saviour and my friend. One of the wonderful definitions of a Christian is that they are a follower of Christ that we follow in his footsteps. What does it mean to do that? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ in the uh, details of our earthly life in the 21st century? What does it mean to follow in the footsteps of Christ even in the workplace? We often think that the Christian life perhaps is um, focus mainly on the heavenlies, but the Word of God and the New Testament clearly tell us and command us to see our Christian faith in the practical events of every part of life, so that holiness has to do with every aspect of our life. As we come to First Peter chapter 2 in the section, which we began a couple of weeks ago, we see that the theme here is submission. The theme is submission from chapter 2, verse 13, right down to chapter 3, verse 6. Peter is focusing on this issue of submission, a key area. Not only is there suffering in the life of a Christian, according to the book of First Peter, there is also submission. And so, having spoken previously in verses 13 to 17 about our responsibility as Christians to submit to the governing authorities, Remembering, of course, that in Peter's day, the governing authorities and the main authority was none other than the Emperor Nero, not the nicest of chaps. And Peter, nevertheless, in fact, the very very man who would be ultimately responsible for Peter's death later on is the very man that Peter is calling upon Christians to submit to. To obey the laws of the land. Why? Because by doing good, by upholding the law, laws that are not contrary to God's law, but all the other laws, it gives Christians a good testimony. They are seen to be good citizens, helpers to society rather than troublemakers. It was a good testimony. And ultimately, I believe Peter has in mind the fact that some people, through seeing the wonderful testimony of Christians, by their willing submission, will actually be drawn to Christ through that. Right? Just look back at um, verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see you good, your good deeds and glorify the God on the day of visitation. What is that? On the day when God draws near to the souls of sinners, that your testimony, which they have observed over time, might be an instrument that God would use to draw him and convince them to come to Christ. So in one sense, we're submissionary missionaries. Okay, 
We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Submissionary missionaries. And now what Peter does is he just applies that not so much to the government now, but to the area of the slaves, Christian slaves, who were answerable to their masters. This is an interesting concept when we think about slavery in the New Testament. And we're going to see what Peter says here, which may be perhaps surprising to what you might think the Word of God would say. So we're going to look today at following in our master's steps through unjust suffering. Through unjust suffering. I have a few points this morning. I'm going to put them up here. And it's working well. The first point this morning. Let's read the text first. That would be a good idea. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Obviously, no credit. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This passage, I believe, gives us insight into how we, in our daily Christian life, and obviously we don't live in a world of a Western world of slavery today, do we? But we do have employers and we do have employees, and each one of us here this morning are probably in one of those categories. And so there is a ready application for us here, though Peter is directly speaking to slaves. Let's look firstly at our first point. And simply the principle, be subject to your masters. Be subject to your masters, verse 18. It's not the usual word for slaves that's often used in the New Testament. The normal word is the word doulos. And there's a ship, isn't there, called the doulos, which goes around the world uh, serving God's purposes and providing aid to to people. Uh, we, we're familiar with that word. It's a different word that's used here. It's only used uh, three or four times in the New Testament. And it's got the idea of um, domestics. Literally, if you were to translate it, it would be domestics. And so this is the idea that they're slaves nevertheless, but those slaves who have a specific sphere and focus within the home of the master. He's speaking to household slaves. 
Now, I know some of you are familiar with Downton Abbey. Now, let me hasten to say that that's not the same setting, obviously, in Britain and 1912 and so forth. Um, but there were household servants, were there not? You say, what's the difference between a slave and a servant? Well, the servant serves the master. The slave is owned by the master. There's a big difference. In the Crawley household, the servants are not owned by the master, but they nevertheless serve, and you get some kind of indication, some insight into life in a household where there were servants, as was common in Britain even. In fact, I was interested to find out when I I did some genealogy work, and you could look up records when I lived in England, I looked up Charles Spurgeon and a record of the people that were in his house, and he himself had household servants. Um, so it's, it's interesting. But the idea here is that these masters, the word here is despotos, from which we get an English word despot. And these masters referred to the one in the house that had absolute authority, absolute ownership of all the slaves and all the things in the household. That's the setting we have here. New Testament does not commend slavery. But you may be surprised to note that it does not, at the same time, call upon Christians to overthrow the institution of slavery. Instead, many times, Paul and Peter here calls upon Christian slaves, rather than throw off the bonds of their slavery and run away and rebel, calls them, on the contrary, to submit to their masters. Submit to their masters. As you know, probably know, the Roman Empire was dependent on the institution of slavery. Some people would say that between somewhere between a third to a half of all those in the Roman Empire were slaves. And it wasn't necessarily that because they were slaves they were always mistreated. Sometimes it was better to be a slave, particularly if you had a kind master, because you would have all your provisions met. Right? And sometimes that was easier because your provisions were met to being having your freedom, particularly when you couldn't find work. Slaves served in all manner of um, professions and uh, services to their masters. Some were even doctors, cooks, many different areas of a slave's service. Other passages which talk about slavery would be First Corinthians 7. Uh, Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the slaves and masters. Colossians 3, 22 to 25. 1 Timothy 6, Titus 2. And even the whole book of, which one? Philemon. Philemon, however you'd like to say it. Um, is all about, what is it all about? It's about a slave who ran away from his master. The slave's name was Onesimus. And his master's name was Philemon. He ran away, and the penalty for a slave to run away and was caught was either beating or sometimes death. Do you know when Onesimus ran away, guess who he ran into? The Apostle Paul. And he heard the gospel and he got saved. And now he's with Paul, and what does Paul do? Does he say, forget about your past, forget about the fact that you're once a slave? No. He sends Onesimus back to his master, who incidentally was also a Christian master. 
And he says to that slave master, you need to forgive. Forgive your slave for running away. Receive him back. What a wonderful message comes out of the book of Philemon about forgiveness. Peter's call here is that Christian slaves submit to their masters. It's a, it's a word, hupotasso, uh, which is the same word used in verse 13 of submission to the government. In other words, to line up under. Um, it's a military term. Be under the authority of. Put yourself under their authority. Instead of a Christian slave finding reason to throw off the bonds of slavery from his earthly master, what Peter is saying is that now that he has an ultimate master, Christ, in heaven, he must obey his ultimate master, Christ, in heaven, by obeying his command to submit to his earthly master. Submitting to his earthly master would be an act of submission to his heavenly master who had commanded such behavior. And then secondly, submit despite your master's character. This is where it gets interesting. Look at verse uh, 18, second part there. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. We know how it is, don't we? In this world, sometimes you have a, some people have a good boss. And you might talk to them and they tell you about their boss and you think, wow, what an overboss like that. Um, sometimes we can have a, a boss who might be in the category here of unjust. Some bosses are good and Gentile, gentle, not Gentile, usually Gentiles. The idea of gentleness here is sweet reasonableness. It's the idea that if you have something you want to talk to your boss about and maybe you want to take some um, some time off, which was unexpected, you, you know that if you go to your boss that he will be reasonable. He'll, he'll listen to you at least. There's some other bosses, bosses would be harsh. A good boss, gentle boss, great. What about an unjust boss? boss? Literally the word is scolios. Scolios. We've got a few doctors in our midst, perhaps not today. But there's a, there's a medical condition called scoliosis, right? Scoliosis. And I'm not an authority on that, but it's the same word that comes from this word translated unjust here. It literally means crooked. Some bosses are good and gentle, others are crooked. Some masters were crooked. And so scoliosis is just that medical term which describes someone who has a crooked spinal column. Instead of gentle and reasonable, this is a master who is harsh, vindictive, unreasonable, capricious, unfair, even perhaps cruel. And here's the amazing thing. Peter says you've got to submit even in the case when your master is like that. Would it be too far-fetched to say today that such a boss could exist in the 21st century New Zealand? By the way, if you are a Christian boss, it's crucial that your testimony from your employees is, uh, is that you are the kind of boss that Peter described in the first part as someone they could say is good and reasonable 
There's a message too here for Christian employers. You might say, or perhaps these slaves might have said, if they found themselves in that kind of situation, or even today, if we find ourselves with a mean boss, that, well, okay, I'll just tender my resignation. I'll go somewhere else. I'll find somewhere else to go. In today's society, we might be able to do that, but it was highly unlikely that a slave would be able to do that. For a slave, you were owned by your master. You had no such option. And even today, let me hasten to add this, even today, though we have great, greater rights given us in the workplace and we have such things as unions and we have avenues open to us if things are harsh and tough, and need changes, there are avenues that perhaps we can take in order to effect changes. But you know what? Sometimes there's still times when you might be in that situation and you're stuck. And there isn't a way out. No other way open to you. No other job available, perhaps, and you're stuck. What do you do? You're stuck with a scolios boss. Before you tender your resignation, if you have an option out, to get away from that nasty boss, ponder what the motivation of your heart might be. Are you doing that because your own personal comfort is what matters most? Or could it be that your difficult circumstances are by God's design a unique opportunity to glorify Him? A unique Opportunity to glorify him. Given spoke on the book of Esther for such a time as this, right? And is not God sovereign over all of our circumstances? He knows the hairs of our head, they're all numbered. Um, he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, according to Matthew 10, Jesus' own words. And of course, he is sovereign over the circumstances within our lives as Christians. And could it be? Wisdom to look with such a perspective on a situation where you find yourself in which is uncomfortable. You say, what are you talking about? Well, verse 19 and 20. You say, how how would I handle a situation like that? How would a slave in that first century handle a harsh master? No way out, no other options. Cruel, mean, treatment, suffering that is brought upon the slave. And probably if the slave was... as the Christian slave, and if the unbeliever um, wasn't attracted to the new behavior of the slave, could even bring more persecution because of the fact he's a Christian slave. How do you handle that? Peter says that we can submit and must submit through the enablement of a God-centered perspective. There is an enablement. There is a perspective that will enable you to Endure such a situation, even when you are suffering unjustly. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows whilst suffering unjustly. Do you know where the power comes to operate according to God's will in a situation like that? It comes from being mindful of God. Some translations talk about when conscious of God. In other words, from a human perspective, if a person found themselves 
in that kind of situation, suffering unjustly with a crooked boss, a crooked master, the natural thing would be to either retaliate, right? Utu, in the Maori word for uh, revenge, um, retaliate or run away or get out of there. That would be the natural response. But Peter says, this is a gracious thing. When, as a Christian, conscious of God, you endure that unjust suffering with patience and endurance. It's a really interesting, in the original, it's literally, it's not a gracious thing, that's the translation. I think it's a good translation, but it's literally, this is grace. In other words, this is grace. When, if you find yourself in that situation, you endure it, even when it's unjust. This is a gracious thing. This is a grace-characterized response as opposed to a human response. You see the contrast there? Um, This is grace to respond in such a way. This is the enablement of grace that enables one to do that. Why? Because you understand that God is sovereign, that there is a God who exists, that he is faithful, that he is in control ultimately. Peter flips it around and he kind of says in verse 20, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Any points given to you for that? Like if you're a slave and you sin against your master and your master brings punishment, is that to be commended? Are you going to win fame for that? Obviously not. I was trying to think of an illustration of that. and You know, imagine a, imagine a student at Hamilton Christian School, always sitting in detention, always there after school doing jobs for the (laughs) principal because their behavior is inappropriate continually and they are deserving of punishment. Imagine prize giving. Prize giving is coming up. Imagine this. Now, after the prizes for sporting achievements and academic achievements, we now have the prize for the student who has successfully managed to gain the most attentions in a school year, and we want to publicly commend him for having completed each one of them with great endurance and perseverance. Okay, it's just not going to fly, is it? Everyone's going to be thinking, you got what you deserved, and there's no credit for enduring that. But think about this. Perhaps in a public school, it's possible. A teacher who was antagonistic to Christianity might perhaps know that there was a Christian who really loved the Lord and was seeking to please the Lord in their life. And because this teacher, non-Christian teacher, um, didn't like Christianity and just rejected the testimony of the student, they could put him perhaps on some kind of detention trump up some charges, make up some things, just out of spite for Christianity. And if that student had the Christian maturity to be able to bear up under that, not retaliate, not swear at the teacher, but to do that, why wouldn't that be an amazing thing? That people looking on would see, wow, that student is suffering unjustly for his Christian faith or her Christian faith, but they so are conscious of God 
and so desiring to please God in a tough circumstance, that is a gracious thing. And folks, it's not for the viewpoint of other people looking on. What Peter's saying here is that God, even if no one else knew about it, in God's sight, it would be a grace thing. It would glorify God. You see that little phrase, glorifying God, to glorify God literally means it's what's the idea that um, we manifest the character and attributes of God himself. You want to glorify God, the means by which you do that is to reflect his character and attributes. And whenever, whenever his character, whenever his attributes are made manifest, then he is glorified. And so you have a Christian, Christian slave, submitting even to unjust suffering by a harsh boss in God's sight, that is a gracious thing. And I come back to the question, what's the most important thing in life? Is it our own personal comfort? Or is it the opportunity to glorify God? And so you see how even every event in life has the potential to be used to the glory of God, even a slave unjustly treated by his master in the first century. You say, what does it mean to be mindful of God, mindful of his existence, mindful of his omniscience? He knows your situation. He is sovereign. He has allowed this circumstance. He is faithful to every promise he has made to his own. And God's glory, mindful that glorifying God is the purpose of my existence. And apart from being mindful of God, yeah, get out of it. Run away. I think Peter is um, echoing the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Remember when Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not if you're persecuted for unrighteousness' sake or punished for being unrighteous, but when you're persecuted for righteousness, when it's for his sake, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account, blessed are you. Because he says, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you're in the camp of the real, the true. You're in the camp of the prophets who truly belong to God. It's an evidence of grace in your life. Fourthly, submit because of the exhortation to follow Christ's example. You ought to submit because of the exhortation to follow Christ's example. For to this you have been called, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you. It's just a footnote. How does the health, wealth, prosperity gospel square up with this passage? The two opposite messages, aren't they? One of them says that because you belong to Christ, you therefore are curbed and exempt from any kind of suffering. That's what health, wealth, prosperity says. On the other hand, the Bible says that as a Christian, you might actually have more trouble for being a Christian. Christ suffered. You are called now to follow in his footsteps. 
It's just ridiculous to believe that God has promised to insulate us from every earthly trial. In fact, James 1 would say that it's through those very trials when we respond with the right attitude that God perfects us and matures us. And we can count it all joy because of that. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Interesting word, for example, there. Um, Literally means underwriting. And for the younger ones here, have you ever done tracing? Anyone done some tracing this week? You have? You take that picture, don't you? And you put it underneath, and then you put a piece of paper on the top. Is that what you do? And then you take a pencil or a pen, and you trace over the top. And the thing underneath is the underwriting that you follow. And so when he says here that Christ left us an example, that's literally the idea. He left us a pattern that we can, by his grace, follow after. To imitate his sufferings, not exactly his sufferings, but the kind of sufferings where we suffer unjustly, and we do so because we're called to belong to him and to follow him. Philippians 1.29 says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 holds a promise, and it's a promise that probably you're not going to claim straight away. It says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. You live the way God wants you to live in the midst of a hostile, crooked, perverse generation, you're going to cop some flack. And it might not be physical violence in New Zealand, but there will be other ways in which you will suffer. And that's all part of following our Lord Jesus Christ. One Puritan writer said that our sufferings are but little chips off the cross of Christ. Our sufferings are but little chips of the cross of Christ. He left an example for us, and we are to follow in his steps. In verse 22, it says about Christ's suffering, when he was, through his ministry, through his life, through his trial, he committed no sin. There was never a time where Jesus Christ uh, lost his temper, Never a time when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, dishonored his father. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, Peter said that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was perfect. And only then could he be our substitute, right? And even Pilate... Pilate attested his innocence twice, at least twice in John's Gospel. Chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Even Pilate, the Roman governor, attested to Christ's innocence. John 19, verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to him, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. In him, he did nothing wrong. Secondly, he he said nothing wrong. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. So verse 23, when he was reviled, 
He did not revile in return. Isn't that the human reaction? When someone says something nasty to us, to revile and respond in the flesh, Jesus never did, even though they called him Satan. Jesus said they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, right? Matthew 10. And then Jesus said, how much more are they going to call the members of his household bad things? They said that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They said that he was a glutton and a drunkard. During his trial, they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And never once did he revile them in return. I wonder, having read Isaiah 53 this week, when it says that before his, that he was silent and he did not open his mouth like a sheep before its shearer is silent, I wonder whether what Isaiah is speaking of is this refusal to answer with reviling in return. Furthermore, when he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't say, yeah, the infinite justice of God is going to condemn you in the end for what you've done to me. No, when he was being crucified, what did he pray? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So therein lies the response that God called these Christian slaves to answer when they were unjustly treated. Peter says, look, look at your master. The greatest injustice in human history he suffered. The greatest offense ever in human history. And yet he didn't revile and neither should you. Instead, here's the power. Here's again the enablement. He didn't threaten when he was suffered. He didn't revile when he was reviled. Instead, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges, what? Justly. You can submit to an unjust boss or an unjust master and suffer for it if you keep in your mind that ultimately there is a higher throne than this master in your life. There is a higher throne because there, beyond the unjust judge is a just judge who is in totally sovereign over the unjust master that God has allowed in your life. And Jesus Christ, even though Pilate had no right to do what he did, even though he was innocent and he was murdered unjustly, the very Son of God, he endured it knowing that his father was completely just, though he was suffering injustice. Remember the criminals? Jesus had two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And we read in Luke 23, these words, one of the criminals who were hanged rallied at him, sorry, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Lastly, 
submit because it's through Christ's own submission that you now belong to him. You see, when he submitted to injustice, according to the will of God, it was through that very act, through that very sacrifice and willing obedience to the Father that you now, Christian slave, have come to know him. Had he not submitted to that unjust treatment, there would have been no redemption. There would have been no forgiveness. There would have been no belonging to him. Peter says in these final two verses that not only were Christ's sufferings exemplary for us, they were also redemptive for us. They were redemptive for us. Uh, Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When Christ suffered the wrath of God, And I believe that was during the hours of darkness, those three hours from midday until three o'clock when he finally gave up his spirit, offered his very life. Upon the cross he bore the wrath of God and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that for you. He did that for me. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wound, his wounds, you have been healed. Verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Can you see how Isaiah 53 just oozes out of this passage? By his wounds, you were healed. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And Peter's really just reiterating that in New Testament terms. You were, and I was, straying like sheep. But praise God, now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The word there for shepherd is the word pastor. In which we get our word pastor. He is the chief pastor. Um, and the word overseer is the word from which we use in First Timothy 3 to speak of the overseer of the church. Synonymous with being an elder in the church. But Jesus Christ is not only the shepherd, he is also the overseer of our souls. Peter describes him as the chief shepherd in chapter 5 verse 4. So wonderful truths here. By his wounds you have been healed. Some have wanted to take this verse and make it mean a license that um, there is physical healing in the atonement. But clearly in context here, he's talking about spiritual healing, isn't he? The verse before, um, he bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin, live for righteousness. The verse following, we were straying like sheep spiritually, but we've now returned. It's not talking about physical healing here. He's talking about by Christ's wounds, we have been spiritually healed and ransomed. John ten eleven. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If there's anyone here today, anyone here today who's never turned to the great shepherd, the good shepherd, I invite you to do so today. He was set 
upon the cross to be a substitute for sinners. To bear out the sins of the world, as First John 2 says, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you've never done that, never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that today. If the Spirit of God is moving in your heart, you know you need to do that. Don't delay. Ask the Lord to be your Savior. Believe in Him. I close with this brief quote. One commentator I was reading this week said this, It is the glory of Christianity, not only that it is divine, but that it brings the divine to our level. It works in clay and transfigures it. It touches duty and transforms it. So you start off with an instruction to these Christian slaves in verse 18, and by the end of this short eight verses, you end up with the most glorious truths of the gospel as a motivation for how the slave should conduct himself toward his master.